Stephanie Spurgeon was a married mother of two and a licensed childcare provider who had been running a daycare facility from her home in Florida for 15 years. On August 21, 2008, one-year-old Maria Harris spent her first day at Stephanie's daycare. Maria's grandmother had picked up a sleeping Maria that day, but soon after had noticed that Maria was unresponsive and in distress. Ignoring other potential root causes and relying on the junk science of shaken baby syndrome, doctors opined that brain bleed and swelling were signs of child abuse, placing blame on the brand new childcare provider, Stephanie Spurgeon. And when Maria died seven days later, the charges were upgraded to murder. But with the lack of external injuries, the state changed its shaken baby theory, concocting a new narrative in which Maria had been repeatedly struck against a soft surface. The defense failed to pivot to this new theory, instead presenting a shaken baby syndrome defense. And with the state's uncontested yet totally dubious soft impact theory, the jury found Stephanie guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter and sentenced her to 15 years in prison. With the help of multiple innocence projects and a current candidate for state's attorney, Stephanie was able to present the proper expert testimony, disprove the state's ludicrous soft impact theory, win a new trial, and ultimately be set free after nine long years. This is Wrongful Conviction. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today's episode is, well, I'm going to be honest with you. It's terrifying because this is a story that is 
both unique and also somehow not uncommon. And it involves an innocent woman working at a daycare center who got caught up in the criminal legal system for no reason of her own making. I'm going to introduce our incredible guest today because we have three, including the woman who lived through this nightmare herself, Stephanie Spurgeon. First, I'm going to introduce our very distinguished group. Seth Miller is here. He's the executive director of the Innocence Project of Florida. does incredible work day in and day out, pushing huge boulders up hills of justice. So, Seth, thanks for being here. Thanks, Jason. Thrilled to be here. And with him and with us is Allison Miller, no relation. She is an attorney with Ripley Weisenhunt and is also currently running for the state's attorney office of Florida. And I hope people will support her because we need people like you in positions like that. But for the time being, we're happy to have you right where you are and right here on the mic. So Allison Miller, welcome to Rawful Conviction. Thank you so much for having me. And Stephanie, what can I say? I feel like the whole human race owes you a debt of gratitude for sharing your story and for just being the strong, courageous woman that you are. And I appreciate you being here. So Stephanie, to you also, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you, Jason. It's my pleasure. And so Stephanie, this is a story that we've heard time and time again, where somebody like yourself is doing, you know, let's call it what it is, essential work. Where would we be as a society without daycare centers, <laughs> the working world would grind to a halt. And yet people like you too often end up in situations like the one we're talking about today. And I mean, it really makes my heart hurt, but let's please take us back before this incident happened in 2008. Can you tell us what your life was like back then? I was married for 19 years and I had two beautiful children. We had a beautiful life. We were a well-knit family. We did a lot of family vacations. I was a licensed in-home daycare provider for 15 years. The parents that would come into my home, they became part of my family. Their kids became part of my family. We would celebrate holidays together and different things. It was very fulfilling. I was able to work with children. I was able to be at home with my own children. I decided at one point to go into special needs children. So I took lots of children that came in who had speech issues or different disabilities. And I grew a real heart for these kids because not a lot of places would accept any special needs children. And then I decided to branch off a little bit further and start taking teenage parent children. So Esther Harris was actually the very first teen mom that I took. She was 17 years old when I was introduced to her and Maria. And so not only are you taking care of other people's kids, you're doing it in your own home, opening your doors and your heart and taking care of kids who have issues that other people might not want to open their home to or, or their hearts, right? I mean, so this case... I'd like to say it happened a long time ago, but it really didn't, right? I mean, it would feel a little bit better if it was back before we had science evolved to a place that it was at in 2008, which is when this tragedy occurred, of course. And I said tragedy, not crime. That's deliberate because that's what it was. And so, Seth, do you want to set the stage for us of what happened on that awful day and how this became a criminal matter? When I think about these cases, when a child dies, 
a lot of times the folks involved in trying to figure out how that happened kind of go nutty. They aren't able to take sober views of what might have happened to that child. And that's what happened here. In this case, Stephanie Spurgeon was running an in-home daycare at her home. It was better business bureau rated, had generations worth of children who come through the daycare, who really positive experiences, their families had positive experiences. And the child, Maria Harris, was her first day at the daycare. And yet on this day, this poor child was suffering from what was clearly a distress, a medical situation. When Maria's grandmother, Patricia, came and picked her up that day, Maria had been sleeping. So I reached into the pack and play and I picked her up and she kind of stirred in my arms and I passed her to Patricia and she stirred in Patricia's arms. And then Patricia took her and placed her in the car and drove her home. 30 minutes later is when we got the phone call. Maria, I guess, was deteriorating as she was sleeping. And I was unaware that there was any issue because I simply thought she was asleep. At the end of the day, the child was throwing up. The child was crying and was clearly kind of lifeless in a lot of ways and called 911 took the child to the hospital. And when they were on the way to the hospital, they tested the child's blood sugar and the child had a high 400s of blood sugar. And I don't know if any of y'all have diabetes or test your blood sugar regularly, but that is four to five times the normal level. And so this child is in major distress. What they do when they get this child to the hospital is they realize after doing a number of tests on the child that the child's suffering from a brain bleed, a subdural hematoma, and the child has brain swelling. And that has led to the child having retinal hemorrhages. And instead of treating the child for what looked like a diabetic situation, a diabetic distress, because the child had this subdural hematoma, because the child had this brain swelling and the retinal hemorrhages, the doctors immediately assumed that this was an abusive situation because they thought that this was the three ingredients, the triad, as they call it, caused by sick and baby syndrome, or what is more commonly known now as abusive head trauma. So they had a chance to try to treat this child to maybe ameliorate or even prevent a bigger problem or death to treat this metabolic, this diabetic situation. But instead, they assumed it was abuse and we were off and running, taking a medical situation and elevating it to a crime. And unfortunately, this child died seven days later. The idea that this might have been prevented if they just simply focused on the problem at hand rather than turning this into wild accusations of child abuse makes my blood boil. I mean, and I think it's worth mentioning as we've covered extensively on our show, Junk Science and other episodes of Wrongful Conviction as well, just a general overview of the theory of shaken baby syndrome or SBS. Now, it was initially introduced as a hypothesis by British pediatric neurosurgeon, Dr. Norman Guthkelch, who was trying to explain a cause for inexplicable child deaths in which a child or baby, toddler, whatever, had presented subdural hematoma, otherwise known as bleeding in the brain, retinal hemorrhage, so, you know, bleeding in the eyes, and brain swelling or cerebral edema. Now, Dr. Guthkelch hypothesized that perhaps a typical method of scolding a child in Great Britain at the time, giving the child a good shake. Maybe that was the cause for unintended or unexplained child deaths in which this triad of medical findings occurred. He never was able to prove this. He just hypothesized it and cautioned parents against the practice, understandably. However, since that hypothesis, the criminal legal system just sort of ran amok with this idea, right? Leaping to the conclusion that 
any child presenting those symptoms, especially if there was any other bruising, had been fatally abused, like sort of one size fits all, which is ridiculous. And that the person less responsible for the child, therefore, must have been the culprit. And I think we as people, understanding the inner workings of the human mind, when bad things happen, we want to be able to say there's someone or something responsible for that bad thing happening. And so where there was a legitimate science, maybe at the inception, this idea has been horribly bastardized to get convictions involving usually the death of infants or toddlers. And Stephanie's case is a perfect example of that, where there is legitimate scientific evidence that this child was in medical distress that went ignored by medical professionals because it was easier to say, oh, this child must have been harmed. Yeah, and it's worth noting that in recent years, as doctors in larger and larger numbers have been challenging the notion of shaken baby syndrome, they've identified, get this, over 80 different pre-existing conditions that can cause what they call the triad of findings that were historically just attributed to shaken baby syndrome almost automatically, right? So the science is there, but I mean, I wish I could say when the criminal legal system is going to catch up. It's entirely possible that it never will because science, let's face it, looks forward while the legal system only looks backward at, at precedent, sort of the opposite. And so, Stephanie, if you could take us back to when you were arrested, what all happened before the trial? My first arrest was August 21st, August 22nd, maybe, 2008. I was arrested on aggravated child abuse. I went to Pinellas County Jail. I was housed in a solitaire cell because, of course, my face was on the news. And I was able to bond out the next day. I think it's important to say my bond was $50,000 and my parents got an attorney for me, which was $50,000. So right away, we're in the hole. I came home and was unable to have a daycare, of course. So I had no income. So that became an issue immediately. Maria passed away seven days later. I was rearrested six weeks later on November 8th, 2008 on capital felony murder. I had just taken my son to his bus stop in the morning. And when I came back home, I pulled up in the driveway, like three squad cars surrounded me and everybody come racing out, screaming and yelling and put me in cuffs and put me in the back of the cruiser and took me back to county jail. When they brought me in from booking that day, they brought me straight to a solitaire cell in the lobby area. And I could look out and see my face on the news. And as I'm looking at my face on the news, I'm looking at the other inmates that are in there getting processed in and they're all looking back at me in that solitaire cell. So it was a very scary situation. There was a grand jury hearing and the attorney that I had, that was $50,000, he wouldn't try a capital case. So we had to hire another firm and they cost us 100000 I ended up getting indicted and then we moved for a bond hearing. My bond hearing was successful, except it was $350,000 with an ankle monitor and no contact with any child under the age of 12. I thought there was no way that my family was ever going to be able to come up with those kind of funds because we had already spent so much. They did come up with it. They fundraised. They drained all of their savings accounts, everything. And one night on January 26th, 
2009, after I think 89 days in a solitaire cell, I was released at 2 a.m. So I was able to come home and, and wake both of my kids up. My daughter and I ended up sitting on the front porch in a rocking chair and watch the sunrise together. It was very hard to sleep because I kept thinking I was gonna wake up and be back in there. The nightmare would be there again. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company, and by Accenture, a global professional services company with leading capabilities in digital, cloud, and security. Working to reform the criminal justice system is a key pillar of the AIG Pro Bono program, which provides free legal services and other support to many nonprofit organizations and individuals most in need. As part of Accenture's commitment to racial and civil justice, Accenture's Legal Access Program provides pro bono legal services in partnership with more than 40 organizations, bringing meaningful change to people and communities worldwide. There were signals even before the trial that the state was going to move away from a shaken baby syndrome diagnosis. The real issue in this case is that we had these presentations in the brain, in the skull, and the doctors were used to saying, it's, oh, this could only be abuse. It's shaken baby syndrome. The problem is these things are normally associated with signs of abuse, external injuries, and this child did not have a scratch or a bruise or not even a single mark on her. And so the doctors are trying to figure out, well, how can we make this abuse and explain away the fact that there's no visual injuries on this child? And this is how what they call the child abuse pediatrician, I'm using air quotes, she came up with the theory that, well, the reason there's no injuries that are apparent on the outside is because this child was slammed repeatedly on a soft surface like a crib mattress. So this case is nutty, right? Because you don't see it very often that the state changes their theory sort of midstream, right? So then they came up with this soft impact theory. But the crazy thing is, it seemed like her attorneys were defending a different theory than the one that the state was trying to convict her on. Am I mistaken about that? That's exactly right. The defense attorney was very focused on shaky baby syndrome. And when I deposed this attorney in post-conviction, I asked him about cases that he had done previously. And what I found out was that he had done a series of shaken baby syndrome cases where he got favorable results for his clients. So he had his PAT experts and a formula for how he would approach these cases. But he simply failed to learn his own case well enough to know that he could not simply employ the same formula that he employed in other cases where shaken baby syndrome was a theory, because not all cases are the same. They're not created equal. In this case, the state had already abandoned the shaken baby syndrome theory for this soft impact theory. And so we're pressing along in a case. They get the biomechanical expert. They do the thing that a lot of people don't do. They get the right expert. They prepare that expert, but they prepare them for the wrong theory. And there was this striking moment in the trial where after the defense attorney sits down, he thinks he's done a great job with the biomechanical expert. And the first question the state asks the expert when they get up is, who told you that this was a shaken baby syndrome case? It was a devastating moment in the trial. And of course, he could have put his expert back up, got them to prepare all the calculations, and he failed to do that because he just didn't even understand his own case. The state of Florida, in their prosecution of Stephanie, relied on one particular pediatrician that they frequently rely on, 
it's so hard because these doctors and experts come in to court couched with credibility and reliability. And especially in areas like Pinellas and Pasco County, where we've used the same experts forever, it's hard helping whomever the fact finder is, jurors or judges, to understand this is a misapplication of science. And so you get doctors that come in and they use words that we as average folks don't understand. And it sounds like, well, it must be true. And then at the end, it's with the conclusion that this child died as a result of intentionally inflicted abusive trauma. Yeah. So the deck is truly stacked against even someone like Stephanie, right? She gets swept under this tidal wave of nonsense that comes from preconceived biases and notions and things, right? Because someone sees her in the defendant's chair, they automatically assume somebody who was there must have done something to be there, right? There's that you have to overcome. Then, as you said, there's all the medical stuff. A guy gets up there and reads his credentials. Sounds very impressive. And then spouting these theories that most jurors are not equipped to understand or unpack. So they think they're doing the right thing. And I have empathy for them, too, for making these mistakes. And Stephanie, you lived through this. So I want to get back to you. What was this like from your perspective as a mom, 19 years married, you know, upstanding citizen, to say the least? Well, Jason, it was absolutely devastating, to say the least. I kept waiting for truth to prevail. I knew that I didn't hurt Maria. So I knew that something would eventually come to surface that would show what had happened. It was terrifying. Terrifying for me. It was terrifying for my children. It was terrifying for my then husband. It was awful. And in the end, it destroyed our whole family. I got a divorce, went to prison, and my kids grew up without their mom. How old were the kids when this happened? My son was 12 and my daughter was 17. So, Stephanie, when the jury went out, can you tell us what you were thinking at that time? Did you think that finally this wrong would be righted and this nightmare would come to an end? I just kept thinking that eventually they would realize that there's no way that I I did this, that nobody hurt Maria. There had to have been something else. The jury deliberated for 21 and a half hours before they came back with an acquittal of capital felony murder, but a guilty charge and manslaughter. I heard a horrible noise from behind me, and it was my son crying out. It was surreal. It just felt like I was in a fog. I remember mouthing, I love you, to my family before. They hauled me out of the courtroom and put me back in that solitary cell. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. 
Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Uh Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I got to prison. I was absolutely terrified and had to learn very quickly how to adapt. In a maximum security prison, you have to always pay attention to what's going around you. And you had to kind of learn how to bob and weave between people. You didn't want to draw any attention to yourself. It's a very scary place. And not only is it scary from the other inmates, but not all the officers are on the up and up. The officers are also very scary. So I got to prison and naturally I was quite angry. And I knew that if I didn't do something with my anger, I was just gonna go down a dark path. 
So I threw myself into learning about my own case and I got certified and became a law clerk, which of course is how I met Amanda Brumfield. We were co-workers in the law library. We both left the maximum security prison and we found ourselves at a faith and character-based work camp. And that was a much safer environment, albeit did not have AC, so it was extremely excruciatingly hot. But I traded the heat for the safety. And I worked with Amanda in the law library and we did everything we could for other people in there. Meanwhile, both learning each other's case as well as our own case. And that's how I survived. Yeah, I don't know where I don't know where they make people like you that find this sort of otherworldly strength, spirit, courage, whatever you want to call it. But I'm just glad you did. And I'm glad that Amanda Brimfield did as well. I mean, she just recently joined us here on Wrongful Convictions. And yeah, I'm so freaking glad that you both found the strength to pull through and be here. Well, I had a good support system, Jason. I, I had wonderful parents and my brother and my children, and they made sure I had all of my needs because, you know, in prison, they don't give you shampoo and deodorant and things like that. You have to buy these things. Thankfully, I had an amazing support system that are still my support system. And, you know, it was very touching because not only did I have a support system for my family, but my clients and the childcare, all of my daycare babies that I raised grew up and sent me checks while I was in prison to help pay for whatever I needed in there. So these daycare babies that I raised were taking care of me while I was in prison. Well, that's full circle, isn't it? I mean, it's a little bit of light in a miserable, dark place and speaks to your character as well. So, Seth Allison, how did this then eventually make its way to your desks? And how did the process finally write itself? You know, what's unique, I think, about this case is that it got to us so much earlier than a lot of other cases. I've gotten guys out of prison who have spent 30 or 35 or even over 40 years in prison. And once you find out about that 20 or 30 years down the line, it's very hard to rectify that. It's a reclamation project that sometimes is beset with procedural problems that doesn't really allow you to turn it around. But here, we were able to get in on the initial post-conviction motion where you have all of the potential claims available to you. You have no procedural problems. And so we only did that because Stephanie wrote to us almost immediately after her initial appeal was denied. And what was interesting is that she had written to us, I was litigating another case with Kate Judson, and we'd come to find out that this other person's case, Amanda Brumfield and Stephanie were friends in prison. And that's kind of how Stephanie got hooked up with us. I remember being in the car driving home from a different prison visit, talking to Kate about Stephanie's application and saying, hey, you want to do another one? And that was kind of like, yeah, let's get it. This case has some crazy issues in it. So what became clear to us is what we already talked about. The lawyer didn't use the biomechanical engineer that he had at his disposal to rebut the state's soft impact theory, how this supposed abuse happened. What happens is that juries are looking for an answer and the prosecution gave them an answer. It's incumbent upon the defense to rebut that. If you don't, your client's going to be convicted. And so what happened here is that not only did they not give them an answer, they put up another expert who agreed that this was from violent trauma. So the defense expert agreed it was from violent trauma, and they never went into any of the underlying medical issues that were very clear that existed. So that was kind of what we focused. 
can we get the biomechanical engineer to look at the studies, do the calculations to prove that slamming on a soft surface can't cause these injuries? And can we talk to pediatric endocrinologists, pediatric geneticists, uh, forensic pathologists or clinical pathologists, a neuroradiologist to look at all of this material in the case and help us understand whether this could even be trauma? And if it wasn't trauma, could it come from another underlying medical issue, particularly issue of related diabetes? And when we were able to do that, what we found out is that we had an expert, a biomechanical expert, who was able to say with supreme confidence that this slamming on a soft surface could not have scientifically caused this child's injuries because he did the preeminent study of just this type of scenario. And it proven that a human of Stephanie's size can't create enough force to cause those injuries in that child's brain without also causing massive external injuries, of course, there were none. And so scientifically, they couldn't do that. Our experts together showed that this was a situation where the child had a blood clot in their brain. The blood clot in their brain caused spillover bleeding into the brain because blood couldn't get out of the brain back to the other parts of the body. And that caused swelling in the brain, which caused the retinal hemorrhages, which caused this child's disease. And all of this was caused by thickening of the blood due to a diabetic situation. And so we have this evidence now, but the key was to show that the trial counsel violated Stephanie's constitutional right to counsel and effective assistance of that counsel by not bringing about all of this information, all of which would prove that there was no crime here and that this child died from a tragic a medical situation that was just undiagnosed. So that's what we did. What was it like, Stephanie, when all of a sudden you've got sort of the dream team, right? I mean, the Florida Innocence Project, those of us who work in the Innocence Movement know that the Florida Innocence Project is held in the highest regard. So when you got the letter or a call or whatever it was saying that they were going to represent you, what was that like? Well, it was a phone call from Seth at the Florida Innocence Project, and he patched through Kate Judson. At that time, she was with the Innocence Project of Wisconsin, now with the Center for Integrity and Forensic Science. And I also had Josh Teffer, who is with the Exoneration Project out of Chicago. So it was unbelievable to know that not only did I manage to get one Innocence Project, but I managed to get three projects all working. And I guess I just kind of like threw up my hands and was just like, finally, finally, like I knew there had to be something there. And finally, somebody found it. Right. All of a sudden, you've got the literal dream team on your side. And Allison, can you take us through how you got involved and what eventually led to Stephanie's freedom? I love this. This, this is my favorite part of the story. So Seth with Kate and Josh did that lengthy post-conviction hearing in front of Judge Burgess which he denied, they appealed, and the Second District Court of Appeal overturned that denial of the post-conviction motion, finding Stephanie's original trial lawyers to be ineffective. Seth and I have worked on a number of different cases or just sort of floated in the same circles, myself at the trial court level and Seth more in the post-conviction world. I could remember when Stephanie's case was overturned, Seth and I having this meeting of the minds where he was like, you know, myself and Kate and Josh obviously still want to be involved, but we need somebody who does trial work. And I was like, well, I would love to be involved. And so that's when I got appointed was like, okay, we're back for a new trial. And instead of the state of Florida saying we concede, the state indicated it intended to retry Stephanie. And so we were like, bring it. Y'all are prosecuting an innocent woman and we're going to embarrass you, was the mentality that we had. 
it was all new prosecutors, all new defense attorneys, and we were gearing up for a battle, frankly. To make a very long story short, the state would not agree to not go forward, but to bring an end to this for everyone, the Harris family, the Spurgeon family. The state was willing to accept what we call an Alford plea, where a defendant pleads guilty but is still exerting his or her innocence, saying, I'm pleading guilty, but because I believe it's in my best interest to do so, not because I'm legally admitting to doing what I'm accused of. And I think we all felt like, because of all the shortcomings in the criminal justice system as they exist, the over-reliance on this pediatrician who doesn't seem to understand science, I couldn't tell Stephanie there was no chance that a jury would convict her again. Stephanie wanted her life back. She wanted her family back. She wanted to be able to put her toes in the ocean. And so for everyone's sake, she agreed to enter this Alford plea and bring resolution to the case. So, look, no one could fault you, Stephanie, for making the decision that you made. People make it all the time. I can find a lot of fault in the state for dangling that sword over your head again. So when did you come home, Stephanie? And can you tell us what it was like walking out into the fresh air? Give us as much as you can. Well, it was definitely hot. I had an entourage of people out there, along with Netflix. We're doing a series. So everybody was filming. I got in the car and the first thing they did was hand me a cell phone. I didn't know what to do with it. I think they were just so excited to, to finally give me some piece of technology. And I went to Wawa's. My kids had always told me about Wawa's. And when I walked in, it, it was just so overwhelming, all the lights and all the things to look at. And I know that probably sounds so silly, but when you've been trapped inside for so long, and I must have looked like I was from outer space because my eyes were staring at the lights. I'm sure my mouth was open. It was interesting. I allowed Netflix to come home with me and film me coming in. And that was a really difficult thing to allow them to film me at my most weakest, vulnerable moment of happy tears. But I did allow it because I wanted to help bring more knowledge when the series finally does air. Amen to that. And I think we all who work in this field live for those happy moments. So, Stephanie, you, on top of all the other unspeakable treatment that you had to endure, you also, as you mentioned, had to spend a king's ransom, you know, to try to defend yourself, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you weren't a rich person going into this. So you now have a bigger support system, right? Over 100,000 people who are listening to your voice now, I'm sure. Many of them would like to do something to help you if they could. Is there some way for people to donate or is there anything else that you could think of that they might be able to do? I have a GoFundMe and I would appreciate anything that anybody could do to help me get back on my feet. I've been home a year now and really haven't been able to build up a whole lot. So I would appreciate that. Thank you, Jason. Yes. And we will link to that in a bio of our episode. So please Take a moment right now, if you're listening and you have something you can spare, please go to the link in the bio and donate. And we're going to join you in doing that and trying to help make this next period of your life a little bit less difficult. And listen, if you're sitting at home wondering how we can help to prevent these wrongful convictions from happening in the future, besides serving on juries and voting like we talked about, 
Donate to Allison Miller's campaign. We're going to, again, have the link in the bio. But Allison, what is the way, if people just want to write it down right now, and we're going to get a bunch of hopefully money flowing your way and help fix this system that wrongfully convicted Stephanie Spurgeon, Amanda Broomfield, and so many others. Well, that would be amazing. My website is millerforstateattorney.com. You can get involved and you can donate securely and easily through my website. I'm on pretty much every social media platform. So now we turn to my favorite part of the show, and everyone who's a regular listener knows what to expect. And by that, I mean closing arguments. And for anyone who's new to this, closing arguments works very simply. First, I once again thank our incredible guest today, Allison Miller, attorney and candidate for state's attorney in the state of Florida, Seth Miller, executive director of the Florida Innocence Project and personal hero of mine, and Stephanie Spurgeon, my new personal hero. And what happens next is I turn my microphone off and leave each of yours on so that you can share any final thoughts that we haven't maybe covered yet or anything else you want to say. I'm just going to kick back in my chair. Let's start with Seth and Allison, and then just hand the mic off to Stephanie, and she'll take us out. So one of the things that I think about coming out of these cases and working on others now is how these things keep happening. We talked about it here, and I, I wonder what we can do to prevent them from happening in the future and how we can end what is like a cottage industry of medical fabrication. And so that to me is the next step of this. We should continue to get people out of prison who are innocent, who put in prison for accidents or for things that have medical causes that weren't even crimes at all. This is the leading cause of wrongful conviction in women. We have to also think about how we can prevent it in the first place. And there has to be a change in the medical community because medical doctors are still being trained every day in medical school to make the same mistakes that the medical doctors in this case and other cases have made. And to me, that's the next stage of how do we prevent this and really just eradicate this fabrication from the criminal legal system. Jason, I want to echo what you said, is that Seth and Stephanie especially are personal heroes of mine as well. And Stephanie is part of the reason why I am running for state attorney. If people like us don't do this type of work, then nothing will ever change. People have to be more involved in their local down-ballot elections, whether it's called the district attorney or the state attorney. We have to take ownership in what prosecution looks like in our jurisdictions, or this sort of thing will continue to perpetuate. And so if elected state attorney, I don't intend to prosecute child abuse cases based exclusively on the testimony of Dr. Sally Smith. I've already enlisted people like Seth and Kate, understanding we're going to have to continue prosecuting child abuse. Of course, everyone wants child abuse prosecuted, but we need to do it with reliable forensic evidence. And we have seen repeatedly in this jurisdiction, at the very least, that this pediatrician is a danger and everyone, frankly, seems willing to ignore it. Stephanie, closing arguments. Well, I would like to start by thanking Allison I appreciate your confidence in me coming into this. I also, of course, have to thank Seth, the Florida Innocence Project, Kate Judson from the Center of Integrity and Forensic Sciences, Josh Teffer from the Exoneration Project, all of their staff, the experts, and all the law students, because it took an army to bring me home. And I'd also like to thank all the people who donate and support organizations like this because if it wasn't for your support, people like me would still be trapped. 
behind those prison gates. I'd like to urge law enforcement and medical staff to not assume abuse when they see a triad of injuries, to not race in emotionally charged and be more diligent. I hope that my story brings awareness to shaken baby syndrome and abuse and head trauma. I appreciate you allowing me to share my story for the first time today. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Justin Golden, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.